Gemar Chatima Tova, everyone. A happy, healthy new year, a good Shabbos, and a good final inscription in the Book of Life. July 4th, this past year, was the happiest day of my life. And it wasn't because of fireworks, and it wasn't because of barbecues. This past July 4th, I landed at Ben-Gurion Airport with Dory holding my hand and my two kids right behind me. Eve and Elias, all of six and three years old, took their blank and pristine passports and they handed it to this beautiful woman standing behind this glass little enclosure and we heard that stamp. And the first stamp on their passport, the very first time they ever left the country, was a stamp from Israel. Sharing the ethic of Israel and love of the country with them at this early stage was nothing short of a blessing and of a miracle. The next day, July 5th, was the most confusing day of my life. We got settled into our apartment, and I promised Evie that I would take her out for ice cream, and I would show her where the Prime Minister lives, which is just a few blocks from where our apartment was. So we walked hand in hand down the Israeli cobblestone, and it was a special moment. I'm watching her, and she's taking it all in for the first time. And in about three or four short minutes, we're in front of the Prime Minister's house. And it was a typical day in Israel where every Israeli was exercising their democratic right and arguing about something. And right in front of the Prime Minister's house was this white tent. And inside the tent were two people named Noam and Aviva Shalit. They are the parents of Gilad Shalit. The soldier who was taken captive 1,548 days ago by Hamas terrorists in Gaza. They have decided to sit vigil in this tent outside the prime minister's home until their son is released by Hamas. Hamas is requesting that 1,500 prisoners in Israeli jails, prisoners who have done very serious crimes, be released so that their son can then be released and return to them. And the Shalits are demanding for the exchange. But directly across the street from the Shalit tent was another demonstration. There was just as large a group of people, and they were all holding signs. And the signs read all different types of things. One said, release Gilad? Yes. For prisoners? No. Another one that said, not at any price. Another one that said, if we release the prisoners, blood will soon flow into the streets. And one said, don't make my son the next victim. At that demonstration, there were a lot of people who lost their loved ones because of the crimes of these people who were in jail. Twelve hours earlier, I was euphoric. I was in Israel, I was eating ice cream with my kids, I was seeing it through their eyes. Life couldn't be better. And 12 hours later, I'm in between two demonstrations, and I literally, I literally found myself in the middle of the street. And my little Evie, six years old, so innocent, asks, what's going on? And I have to figure out how I'm going to explain it to her. And then she says to me, as I try and work through these very complex and very evil and very difficult situations that adults can't understand, 
She says to me, Daddy, which one are we going to? And I didn't know how to answer her. The Shalit family, it resonated with me. God forbid, poo, 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 that were my child. 10,000 prisoners, I want them back. And I would go into Gaza myself to get them. And I would go to the prison and release them all to get them. Because that's my kid. But at the same time, God forbid, my loved one, poo, 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 were taken away through a terrorist act. I would do everything in my might to make sure that person was not released so they could cause that pain and inflict that harm on another family. I'm in the middle of the street and I don't know where to go. And I don't know how to answer my innocent daughter who was just after ice cream and now is as confused as I am. These two sides of the street are emblematic of two angles. Two approaches that the Jewish people have found themselves on either side for most of their existence. On one hand, the Jewish people have always found themselves within imminent doom. Terror will flow. When will the next bombing be? Is Iran going to become nuclear? And when are they going to attack? Will they become nuclear? When will the rockets start raining down from Gaza and Lebanon again? Not if, but when. And then on the other hand, Jews always feel invincible. We will win all of our wars. We'll send a few sorties over to bomb the reactors in Iran should they become nuclear. We'll wipe out Hamas. Moshe Dayan, in 1967, on the eve of the Six-Day War, was giving an interview to reporters, knowing the war is about to happen. And this is what Moshe Dayan says. He says, we're preparing for a three-front war. We're outnumbered 12 to 1. Our enemies not only have the ability to destroy us in hours, but they've actually begun planning hotels that they're going to build in Tel Aviv. And our citizens outside of Tel Aviv are digging mass graves for the carnage that's about to ensue momentarily. We're really worried in Israel. But you should know that if we do our job right, we should annihilate their air force in six hours. These are the words of Moshe Dayan in 1967. Imminent doom and invincibility. And these are the two polarities that we bounce from, from one side to the other. And they have polarized our people as well. Some believe the worst is always coming. Some believe that no matter what, we can beat it. We're the Jews. We've always beaten it. And ultimately, the two sides of the street that I was found in the middle of are the same argument. Release the prisoners. Get them back. If they cause trouble, we'll catch them again. And the other one said, no. Release the prisoners. It's just giving them more fuel and more things are going to happen. Imminent doom versus invincibility. Allow me to give you another example as explained to me by a dear friend, Rabbi Danny Gordis, who does it through image that I'm going to ask you all to conjure in your mind's eye that you already know. 1942, the Warsaw Ghetto. A young boy, no more than eight years old, stands, his hands in the air, fear in his eyes, a black tattered jacket, and a yellow star that reads Jude, staring down the barrel of a gun pointed directly at him. That is imminent doom. Juxtapose that picture to another picture you've all seen. 1967, the third day of the Six-Day War. Three soldiers standing at the Kotel, at the Western Wall. They've just taken the old city. Their helmets are in their hand. They're looking up. There's a sense of satisfaction. There's a sense of arrival. There's a sense of peace. That's the picture 
of invincibility. And if you want the picture of both at the same time, just look at Entebbe. The raid in Entebbe in 1976, which was all about the imminent doom of the Jewish people and our indomitable spirit that went in in a surprise attack and released all of the hostages. But these ideas of imminent doom and invincibility are growing old in the Jewish narrative, and they're growing old in the Israel narrative as well. We've been talking about how our neighbors hate us, and how we're going to overcome any attack since I was born. And it went on way before then, too. It's true. Many people don't like the Jews. And it's true, many people want us gone. And it's also true that we're very strong and we cannot be threatened again. I agree with all of those statements. But here's my question to you tonight. Is that our story? Is that what we're about? Is that the story of Israel and the Jewish people in 2010? In 57, 71? I'm not so sure. Sometimes... I think of my arrogance, I can fix most situations. It's part of being 36 years old, and the arrogance comes from being a rabbi. When we graduate rabbinical school, at ordination, they give us a big bottle of arrogance. They tell us to put a liberal dose on every day, and it never runs out. But on this issue, on reacting to our Jewish narrative, even in my arrogance, I was totally stymied. I couldn't do it myself. So one night, in frustration, I went to bed, and I had the following dream. I dreamt that I'd summoned from the dead the following all-star team of Jews and leaders to help us figure out how to negotiate the challenges of the Jewish people, and in particular, the state of Israel. Around the table, I summoned Abraham, our forefather, Moses, our leader, Maimonides, Rabbi Joseph Caro, the codifier of Jewish law, Theodore Herzl, Hannah Senesch, David Ben-Gurion, and my grandfather. I had to include some family. <laughs> so I started in the dream by thanking them all for coming, and I said like this, Ladies and gentlemen, I need your help dividing a problem in the Jewish state. The Jewish state? Their eyes and ears perked up. Yes, we have a problem, I continued. You see, we have this country, and it's 62 years young. It's the only democracy in the Middle East, I said. We arrived there, and we've won five large-scale wars and many small skirmishes, and we are allies with the United States, which is the world's largest superpower, and we have a lot of other allies in countries, too, including Spain and France and Germany and most of Europe. And anyway, since June of 1967, which was the war where we really annihilated all of our enemies in six days, it was very quick with our Air Force. Uh, we've had the strongest Air Force in the world for a long time, by the way. Anyway, since then, we've had this pressing issue called the Palestinian people. And they want their own homeland. And we've been annexing parts of our land to them and engaged in constant negotiations back and forth, but they don't seem satisfied with the offers we're giving them. And then we gave some land back in 1980 to Egypt because Anwar Sadat came and shook hands with Menachem Begin in Jerusalem and they made this peace deal. And then we tried the same thing in Gaza where we evicted some people who were living in Gaza and gave them back their land, but that didn't go so well for us. It didn't go so well for them. And a lot of rockets came in after that. It was really bad. And then there was this report called the Goldstone Report that says we're really too aggressive 
oppressive and war and we need to rethink our military approach. And all of this is happening, by the way, you should know, while this land is called Israel, by the way, I told them, it's all happening while there's 7 million Jews there and it's thriving and things are good and there's 6 million Jews in the United States and Jews are doing well there too and their own land and they can be presidents of banks and corporations and we even officially elected a vice president of the United States who was Jewish but it was taken away from him in Florida and had nothing to do with anti-Semitism at all and all types of things are happening and and Oreos are kosher. (laughs) Anyway, I need your help and the thing is in the middle of my sentence in this dream Theodore Herzl raises his hand. Theodore Herzl, the founder of Zionism, says, hold on a second. You have a homeland? You mean that dream I had worked? And then Hannah Senesch, who was the heroine who tried to parachute into Eastern Europe to save Jews in Hungary during the Holocaust, she chimed in and she said, there's a country where the majority of the people are Jews? And this country is allies with Germany? And then Ben-Gurion said... We have an air force? It defeated Syria and Egypt and Jordan in six days? Are you serious? And that guy Menachem Begin, the activist, he shook hands with the Egyptian prime minister in Israel? And we gave them land back? And then Maimonides stands up. He's dignified. He's articulate. He says to me in a way that was clearly obvious that he's speaking on behalf of everyone at the table. He says, David, let me understand this correctly. Jews are allowed to own property in the largest superpower in the world. We have a homeland that any Jew can return to at any time and claim their stake in. This country has the strongest air force and one of the most impressive defense forces, including intelligence forces in the world. This country, called Israel, has nuclear weapons in which to defend itself. You are not an oppressed people, but you have people living in your land that yearns for their independence and freedom. You have fighting in Israel, internally, but mainly between the religious Jews and the secular Jews. And you have to decide how to fix this problem? David, what's the problem, Maimonides says? You woke us up for this? This is what we could only dream of. Why do you see this as a problem and not a blessing? Next time, wake us up when you have real tzuris. And I woke up from that dream in a sweat more confused than when I went to bed. What that dream told me was that we are at a place in our history that we have never been at before. We haven't been there in the time of Abraham, in the time of Moses, in the time of Karo, in the time of Senesh, and even in the time of Ben-Gurion. We've never been there before. And if we've never been there before, then we cannot rely upon the same narrative to get us through the future. This illustrious dream team of intergenerational Jewish leaders was telling me what we have already believed. That we've got to stop talking about imminent doom and invincibility. It's time for us now to create a new narrative of the state of Israel and our peoplehood. We've been so busy going back and forth between these two polarities that we've missed the opportunity of all that's happened in this time. We haven't paused to see the blessing. It reminds me of the story by S.Y. Agnon, the Israeli poet and writer called Alpi Shnayim. It tells the story of a guy who goes to shul on Rosh Hashanah and he can't decide which talus to wear. Should he wear the talus that his parents gave him when he became a bar mitzvah? Or should he wear the talus 
that his wife gave him when he got married. And he's standing outside the shoe and literally there for hours. He can't make up his mind. Should I wear this one? Should I wear that one? This one's this color. This one's that color. If I wear this one, I'll make her happy and I'll make them mad. If I make this one, I'll make them happy and I'll make her mad. He can't make up his mind. Finally, he comes to the conclusion, I'm going to reach my hand inside. I'm going to yank out a talus. Whatever talus I wear, that's the one I'm going to keep on. And he does. And he throws it on his shoulders and he runs into the sanctuary just in time for the closing hymn of Adon Olam. He missed Shul. He was outside contemplating which one to wear and he missed Shul in the meantime. Aren't we doing the same thing? We're so focused on either of these extremes of imminent doom and invincibility, we're missing all the blessings, all the opportunities, all of the pages that have turned on our nation and all that Israel offers us. This holiday is supposed to make us a little uncomfortable. We're supposed to be hungry, not only to purify our physical bodies, but also to undergo change, to get out of the routine, to make us move and see things from a new place and fix what is broken and change our ways. This holy day of Yom Kippur is our invitation to begin our new narrative. It's a time to break out of the comfortable, the familiar, and the place that we know. It's a time to stop what can easily become the fatiguing conversation of this doom and this unstoppable force that we have become so accustomed to. Rather, it's a time to celebrate our achievements, our contributions to the society at large. Today is the day to pick up a pen and to write in our new narrative about the nine Nobel Prize winners that are Israeli. Italy, which is centuries older then Israel can boast of 19. Russia, 23. Poland, 12. And the nascent Israel, 62 years young, already with nine Nobel Prizes and many more to come. Today is a day to pick up our microscope and laser in on the achievements Israel has made in medicine and technology that are too numerous to mention. But I'll list just one. My father-in-law, who is an orthopedic surgeon in Texas, was in Israel this summer. And while he was visiting, he made a day trip to Tel Aviv to the laboratories called Argo. Argo Technologies have developed a revolutionary quasi-robotic system that will enable people who are bound to a wheelchair to walk again. This wearable upright system that they call the exoskeleton was specially designed for people with lower limb disabilities. There's a clip that's circulating all around YouTube that shows a man who's been confined to a wheelchair for 20 years. He's walking and going up and down stairs, and he's driving a car wearing the exoskeleton. The inventor of the program said, we want that this person and any person who has a lower limb issue to wake up in the morning, put on clothes, put on the exoskeleton, go to work, and go through their whole day wearing it and feel normal again. This is amazing. It's amazing. A paraplegic from a car accident. A bombing victim who cannot use their lower extremities. Someone who suffers from multiple sclerosis can now walk and feel independence and see people at eye level. And guess what? Developed in Israel. How many of us in this room knew that? How many of us realized that this technology came out of Israel? How many of us make this part of our narrative? How many people here know that Teva Pharmaceuticals, located in Petah Tikva, just outside of Tel Aviv, is the largest generic pharmaceutical maker in the entire world, and one of the 20 largest of all drugs in the entire world? Did you know, chances are that your z 
Your Keflex, your erythromycin, your ibuprofen, your Cipro came from Israel. Did you know that Israel ranks fourth in the world in scientific activity? That Israel's percentage of the total number of scientific articles published yearly is ten times its percentage of its population? Did you know that nations all over the world, all over the globe, are turning to Israel for advice and counsel on science? In 1954, a man by the name of Svi Tavor came up with the idea of a panel that could be put on the roof of your home and it could suck in energy from the sun. And we could turn that energy to heat water. And now every home in Israel is required by law to have a panel on its home. And it's on the roof that takes solar energy, takes it from this panel, and turns it into hot water. Every hot shower, every dishwasher, every warm bath in the nation of Israel is a result of Tzvi Tavor from 1954. 1954, which tells us this isn't an innovative country in the last 10 years. This is an innovative country from its inception. It was David Ben-Gurion who once said, we can't worry about being up to date. We in Israel have to be up to tomorrow. The following is a quote from the Wall Street Journal in review of the book Startup Nation. For any of you who have not read the book Startup Nation, you should go home tomorrow as soon as you break the fast and get on Amazon and buy it. And for those of you that read it, you should do a mitzvah. Go buy it and give it to a friend. Maybe a friend who's Jewish, maybe a friend who's not Jewish, but change their life and give them this book. This is a quote that was in the Wall Street Journal. And it says, there are more new innovative ideas coming out of Israel than there are coming out of Silicon Valley right now. And it doesn't slow during economic downturns. The authors of Startup Nation, Dan Senior and Saul Singer, are quoting an executive at British Telecom, but they could just as easily be quoting an executive at Intel, which last year opened a $3.5 billion factory in Kiryat Gat, an hour south of Tel Aviv, to make sophisticated nanometer chips. In 2006, Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway invested $4 billion in a company in Israel. 80% of the company for a company that has been implementing special cutting tools that cuts the heavy, heavy steel in cars and in airplanes. John Chambers, who's Cisco's chief executive, has bought nine Israeli startups in the past seven years. Steve Ballmer from Microsoft says that Microsoft is as much an Israeli company as it is an American company because of the importance of its Israeli technologists. And an executive at eBay once said, Google, Cisco, Microsoft, Intel, eBay, the best kept secret is that we all live and die by the work of our Israeli teams. It's amazing. Our job is to take the findings of this book and to share it with everyone and to make it part of our narrative. We should print it in the papers. We should take these contributions about technology and share it with all who can. We should let hospitals and physicians worldwide sing the praises and the advances of the medical work in Israel. We should let every discipline of these accomplishments be heralded around like a trophy. It's not the time for modesty. It's the time to do what we do best as Jews. Shepnachas for our country and share it with the world loudly and proudly and often. Yet, 
Too many of us hear these achievements and we move on with our day and we don't feel exceptionally moved or proud. We'd rather hear about Abu Mazen, Abbas and the peace process and Hamas and how we're going to choke them out. We're more comfortable fearing Iran and talking about bombing their nuclear facilities like it's going to be a walk in Central Park. We're afraid of our new narrative. We're more comfortable with the familiar that we've always had with less hope and less promise. I understand not everything in Israel is sunshine and sprinkled cookies. The land has real challenges and there are serious growing pains. There are even things that make me, a proud Zionist, very frustrated about the land. The same thing in America. Same thing in every country, in every relationship. Nothing is perfect. And there's no holiday to better represent that fact than Yom Kippur. And we shouldn't feel disillusioned that all is going to be fine. If some say peace is on the horizon and then everything will be smooth. I doubt it. Our neighbors who are fighting with us, they don't want peace. Some do, but most of them do not. And most of their leadership do not. Here's the fact. If they wanted peace, we would have had it long ago. But it's not wanted, and thus it's not about to happen. And guess what? Our neighbors that hate us today, they're going to hate us tomorrow too. And some in this room and some outside this room have these utopian ideas that some deal is going to be brokered on some lawn and some handshake is going to happen and then peace will ensue throughout the world and Jews will be embraced by every country and they'll no longer be a skinhead and will never be seen as the other or different. It's never going to happen. All planes will always need extra security. The Israeli Olympic delegation will always travel with armed guards. We're not going to change that anytime soon. And equally, all those people who love and support and cry and work for Israel will continue to love and support and cry and work for Israel. And those that seek peace with Israel, they're going to find it quickly because the country is a peaceful country. Where we've been given the opportunity to move the needle is in offering a new narrative of Israel's contribution to humanity and the world at large. Ambassador Oren spoke brilliantly and eloquently last week in front of our congregation about the impressive and growing list of our collective achievements and the repairing of the world that stems from Israel and her citizens. Israel has offered more to the world in 62 years than the entire region surrounding her has offered in all of its existence. And in a world that has many people focused on delegitimizing the state of Israel, in a world that looks to boycott Israel, to divest Israel, to offer sanctions against Israel, the best antidote is showing exactly what Israel offers. How this world is better. How this world is stronger. How this world is holier. How this world is more ethical because Israel is a part of it. Divesting and pulling from the sacred land deprives humanity and the world of the essentials that have made our lives better and made our world stronger. We need to demonstrate that we can't afford to imagine one less contribution from the state of Israel because of a boycott or a divestment or a sanction that is ludicrous to start with. Our role, our role in this narrative is to be proud and to be a part of it. We can show our pride in countless ways, namely by speaking about it around the water cooler, around our dinner table, around the cafe, and making it part of the words that we share. One change 
the Temple Emmanuel will make in the coming year is to begin to publicize in our weekly email that goes to over 1,700 people one fact, one innovation, one contribution that the State of Israel offers. Each week, a new one. And we're going to do the same thing in the 10 in the Temple Emmanuel newsletter. And I'm going to speak more regularly from the pulpit about those contributions and innovations as well. It's not going to change everything, but it's a beginning. It's a start. We need to speak about our accomplishments with our head high. We become part of this narrative in a lot of ways. We can pick up our tools, whether it's a computer, and we can start using technology that comes out of Israel. We can pick up our tools as an advocate and start sharing some of the moral lessons that Israel teaches us daily. If we're in the medical services, we can promote Israeli medicines and medical breakthroughs, which are abundant. And as investors, we can start by putting our dollars in Israel. We can buy Israeli stocks. And everyone in this room should be buying an Israeli bond. Whether it's at $100, $1,000, or $100,000, everyone in this room should make a statement about investing with Israel. We all have a place. We all have a role in being part of our new narrative. A new narrative that's not built on imminent doom or invincibility, rather on promise and contribution to the Jewish and non-Jewish world. But more than anything else you can do to be a part of Israel's new narrative is to go to Israel. I am continually shocked and saddened by the astounding numbers of people in our community who have yet to go to Israel. Yet they have found the time and the means to go to countless other places. You need to go to Israel. And if you've been to Israel, you need to go back and go again and again, often and soon. I can never explain to a person who has no sight what colors are. I could never adequately describe the love that a parent shares for a child to a barren woman. I could never describe what lovemaking is to a virgin. I could never describe what it is that we share in our relationships with God to a non-believer. And I could never adequately describe the taste, the feel, the sense of belonging, and the spirit that is Israel, except to be in Israel. You need to get to Israel to begin your new narrative. My friend, Rabbi Felipe Goodman, shared a story with me. A story about an elephant that has a chain, and the chain tied to a stake in the ground. But it's a small chain. Why doesn't he escape from the chain? The circus elephant doesn't escape, he's told. Because that circus elephant has been tied to that stake since he was very, very little. So I imagine when I close my eyes, this newborn elephant tied to the stake. And I'm sure in the beginning he fought and he tried the chain to free himself. But despite all the efforts, he couldn't. The stake was certainly too strong for him. And he tried again for several days but to no avail. And so one day, he stopped trying. He couldn't do it anymore. He has some memories of the frustration he felt shortly after being born, and he has accepted his situation for the rest of his life. That's kind of how we are. We continue to live thinking that we are something in our past, that we are limited by our chains. Perhaps because we tried it before and failed, or perhaps because we've never tried it before. But ladies and gentlemen, 
We are no longer that little elephant. We are a different and beautiful creature that offers much to this troubled world. And Yom Kippur is a day to break free from our chains that have inhibited us. I don't suggest in creating this new narrative that we ignore the threats of rogue nations and maniacal fanatics that call for our destruction like Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Nor do I recommend that we act cavalier about our strength and our resilience and our capabilities. That would be terrible. However, I do suggest that we pivot from making this the core of our story to a part of our story. From a main dish to a side dish. I'm not naive. I know this narrative will not magically erase the confusion of where I find myself in the middle of the street between the tent for Gilad and those protesting the release of prisoners on his behalf. Some parts of our existence are hard. Really hard. And sometimes I feel like I can't escape that imminent doom feeling and other days I feel like I can't shake that indomitable feeling of Israel and her people. But seeing my kids in Israel and appreciating Israel made each moment of that experience whether it was on top of Masada, in a theater in Haifa, shopping in Tel Aviv, or playing on the beach in Netanya, continue to be the happiest four weeks of my life as my kids were beginning their own narrative with Israel. I only pray that as they grow and mature, and their understanding and appreciation of our shared homeland, that they won't only share Israel's continuing value contributions to the world, but that they'll also be a part of it. And I pray, I pray to God that you will all be there to be their partner too. Be their partner and being a part of it. Grab their hand. Start that new narrative. Tonight is the night to change. Tonight is the night to create new narratives. Tonight is the night to get out of our comfort zone, the places where we're familiar, and start something new. Something less popular but more worthy. Tonight, as we declare in Kol Nidre, our old ways gone, let us all commit to a new narrative and new words of the beauty, the contribution, the splendor and benefit of our homeland and our role in its present and especially in its future. Amen.